0: All right, it is good to see everybody here this morning at Berean Bible Fellowship, and may the Lord bless this service today and strengthen every heart, and may no one go away today without a sense of God's presence and ministry here today. Thank you for being here. We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 18, that place where we read in the Bible just a few moments ago, and I'd like to call out one of the verses for us that we're going to be interested in in particular, and that's verse number 1. You might have sort of caught that. It came up right away, but you might have caught it. It's the one that has the question in it. Verse number one, at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What do you think about that for a question? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We'll take a look at that in just a few moments. Heavenly Father, thank you for your loving kindness and thank you for the blessings that you've given to us through this past week. And Father, now as we come to a new week, we recognize once again and even confess by our presence here our need of you in this new week. We desire to begin the week with you so that you may speak to us, you may guide us, you may comfort us, you may convict us. I pray, Father, that you will meet with us here today and bless every heart. Lord, you know our downsitting, you know our uprising, you understand our thought afar off. So we know, Lord, that you know the need of every heart. You know just what's needed, and we can only have faith in you that you will uh, take the things that were put in place for the service today, regardless of our knowledge of people's circumstances here, and use them for your honor and glory, and bless them to each heart. May Jesus be uplifted. May the souls of your people be strengthened and enriched. And Lord, if there's anybody here today who doesn't know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, We want always to pray that you'll use your word to open our hearts and minds to the need of faith in Christ, the need of the forgiveness of sins, the need of a reconciliation with God, and the fact that Jesus Christ offers a full pardon to us through his precious blood shed on the cross of Calvary. Make that desirable and winsome in the sight of anyone today here who may not know you. For we pray in Jesus' holy and wonderful name, amen. They asked him this. So we are continuing looking at some of these questions that we find people asking Jesus as we read through the gospel stories. I'll just say this. You remember that probably one of the largest categories of different people who ask these questions of Jesus, the largest of them probably is his disciples. And so we have another such question today that the disciples ask. Not all of them that we've looked at so far have been. You remember we had two from John the Baptist And we will certainly get to the point where we see some questions that were asked by Jesus' opponents. But for right now, we continue looking at questions that his disciples um, asked of him. And uh, today, as as I say, we have a rather momentous one. I think about this particular question, and I, I think that this may be one of the most convicting and revealing of all of the questions they asked. And I was thinking a little bit about some of the circumstances that we realize are here today and thinking about folks who have suffered loss. And uh, when I say convicting, um, I guess that stands a little bit by way of contrast to a message that would be uh, designed to comfort people. But God knows all about that. I tell you, there is some small comfort, I feel, in finding God speaking to me, because I feel if God is speaking to me, then I realize he's not done. He loves me. He cares about me. He takes the trouble to show me those things in my life that may not necessarily be pleasing to him or where I can be more like him or uh, that I need to uh, listen to his voice. That to me is um, really something. And when I sense that, I'm, I'm comforted by that. So maybe it will work out for us in that particular sense today. A little background on this. Um, In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the so-called synoptic gospels, the ones who have much of the same material, albeit told slightly from different perspectives, um, we have an account of this particular story. It's kind of interesting that Matthew's, in this case, is the longest of them, and Matthew is the one who preserves the question for us. We do have some other details that are given to us in Mark, confirmed by Luke, but Luke is the shortest of the accounts. But the disciples essentially want to know who among them was the greatest. This is going to take us back a lot of years, but I think this will help us to get into kind of the mood of what we want to talk about a little bit today. If you weren't living in the 1960s, you may well uh, still know about this story. But in 1964, a 22-year-old heavyweight boxer stunned the world by defeating early in the fight a man by the name of Sonny Liston, who was at that point the world heavyweight champion. This man's name at the time, he called himself Cassius Clay. And then you remember later, he indicated that he had converted to Islam and renamed himself Muhammad Ali. When that fight was over with, 1964, and Cassius Clay was the new world champion heavyweight fighter... He had this to say about himself. I am the greatest. Now, he went on to say this. It gets even a little bit more (laughs) off the scale. I knew I had him in the first round. Almighty God was with me. I want everyone to bear witness. I am the greatest. I am the greatest thing that ever lived. I don't have a mark on my face, and I upset Sonny Liston, and I just turned 22 years old. I must be the greatest. I showed the world. I talk to God every day. I know the real God. I shook up the world. I'm the king of the world. You must listen to me. I am the greatest. I can't be beat. Well, that's a little off-putting and a little bit over the top, but it is revealing, as I said, and uh, it is a little bit convicting when we realize that sometimes similar thoughts, albeit perhaps not couched quite as explicitly as that, sometimes go through our own minds, just like they did the disciples. So we want to learn about greatness today. What's real greatness? And I think the best way for us to discover this and looking at how Jesus chooses to answer this is, is how we're going to discover this truth, and it's going to be by comparing greatness according to human standards. So how do we tend to measure greatness ourselves in the flesh versus, and, and how were the disciples tending to look at this versus greatness by divine standards, that is what Jesus does and how he answers the question. And that's where we sort of really get the contrast, but in getting the contrast, we get the message. And hopefully that's what the Lord will speak to our hearts a little bit about today. Greatness according to the disciples, greatness according to human standards, greatness by human standards. I think we can make four observations about this question that they ask, and it gives us four insights into this idea of how do people understand greatness just looked at from a human perspective, just the perspective of the natural man. I make this observation, first of all, and this is probably the one that the others all flow from. This is probably the key one for us to get. This question was worldly by its very nature. You see, they've been inquiring about the kingdom of heaven. This is what makes this so fascinating, because you would think that their question is spiritual in nature, and in reality, even though maybe they conceive of it that way, it's worldly in nature, very worldly. I hope to be able to show you why I say that. Because, you see, the way they couch the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So a lot of them were fishermen, and you notice they didn't say, who's the best fisherman? Who's the greatest fisherman? They weren't thinking in those terms. They were actually thinking about the spiritual realm, and they wanted to know who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And yet the whole standard by which they conceived of that greatness was what I like to call the big shot syndrome. Would you suspect that maybe Muhammad Ali had a little bit of that case, the big shot syndrome? And even though that one is one that we can kind of say, well, I don't think I take it that far, Uh, well, probably not, but sometimes that thought runs through us. The big shot syndrome is the idea of conceiving of greatness in terms of who will have the best place, who will have the highest rank, who has the highest income, these types of things, who has the highest seat or position of authority. Just to sort of get a little idea of this, I want to remind you of something that's just taken place in the very near context. To me, it's kind of interesting that when you look at these three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where you have this story told, what I'm going to tell you now is true of all of them. And that is that not too much in the distant context is the Mount of Transfiguration story. That is when Christ was transfigured. So in Where we are right now, you don't have to turn to see this, make this observation. You're looking at Matthew 18.1, just look over at Matthew 17.1. You may not even have to turn the page. But it says, And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. So why would this be of interest? Why do you think that this maybe has something to do with what's going on here? Well, if this is in the not-too-distant past... Three of the nine have been especially selected, right? Peter, James, and John. And they have had an experience that the others don't get to share. Well, we don't determine those things. Those are God's sovereign decisions that he makes. But you can see how that might have had a little bit of an effect upon them, and maybe even brought this question to bear with the disciples about, well, okay, Peter, James, and John, they had this experience. The other nine didn't have this experience. Does that mean that they're better, that they're greater? And so this discussion begins to take place among the disciples about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And when we turn over another page or two to Matthew chapter 20 it kind of seems like maybe this whole idea, this whole line of thinking sort of uh, spread out a little bit. And uh, thinking of Peter, James, and John, now we look at Matthew chapter 20 and we look at verse number 21. It says, then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children. So who are they? James and John, right? So the mother of two of the three that we've just now called attention to. She comes to Jesus, it says, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, what wilt thou? She saith to him, look at this now, grant that these my two sons may sit with thee on thy right hand and on the one on thy right hand and the other on thy left in thy kingdom. Does that begin to kind of give you some insight, see, into what I'm talking about? I'm sure that. Mrs. Ebedee would have never called this the big shot syndrome. But in reality, that's the thinking that it reflects, does it not? Her two boys have had the opportunity to be a part of this experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. So she begins, we might surmise, she begins to get a little bit of an idea, boy, you know, they must be high up on Jesus' list. And so then she comes and makes bold, and, and I, you know, it's not my place to question her, but she comes to Jesus, and even though she may be quite sincere, she's still thinking of this in those same terms. She's thinking, well, if one of them has the position on your left and one of them has the position on your right, if you think about like a monarch sitting on his throne, well, these are going to be the most exalted people. So in her mind, that would be the greatest. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so if you think about this now, what we've looked at You take a worldly concept of greatness, translate it over into the spiritual realm, and you almost begin to arrive at what might be the most dangerous of all of the elements. Spiritual pride, which at its root is really worldly, may in fact be the worst kind of pride that we have to encounter and deal with. If we bring these concepts, this big-shot syndrome, over into the church then maybe you begin to get a little bit of an idea of what I'm talking about. Who's the greatest in the church? Well, how do we think about those things? And I hope to say a little bit more about uh, that in in just a bit. But I, I would bring you to think about something that John now, we've kind of called John out a little bit and talked about John, Peter, James, and John. Later in life, a lot of years later in life, John would be given the opportunity to write something about this, and I can't say that this was in his mind at the time, although we can look at Peter's epistles, and we can sense that many of the things that happened in Peter's life were in his mind when he wrote his epistle. I'd like to show you this. If you have some fingers or something, you can keep here, because we aren't going to be long gone from Matthew chapter 18. But turn over to the little epistle that John wrote, 1 John, towards the end of the New Testament, 1 John chapter 2. These are verses that are well-known. But I, I think if you see this, it might make more of an impact in the context of the message this morning. So 1, Peter chapter, um, sorry, 1 John chapter 2, I'll read verse 15 because this is kind of how we tend to take this. We kind of like 15, 16, and 17 together. 16 is really what I'm after, but it says, Love not the world. So do you get the impression he's talking about the world, world and worldliness? Neither the things that are in the world... If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now watch. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and what's this next phrase? The pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Do you see why I'm making the observation at the outset that this question on the part of the disciples, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, although... It may have sounded like it was a question that was in the spiritual realm. It really reflected worldly values and worldly thinking about how you define greatness. That's why what we're talking about in this first point is greatness by human standards. When I make the statement that spiritual pride may be the most evil and worst of all, we could also look at this. Do you remember back in Isaiah chapter 7 and um, 7? Actually, it's uh, it, it's chapter fourteen. I'm sorry. I guess they're used to saying Isaiah seven fourteen and get confused with this. But it's it's Isaiah chapter fourteen. This takes us back to um, again. I think this is familiar, but now maybe to see it in this context, where most uh, Bible teachers and students feel that what happens is is the language then begins to go past just talking about the king of Babylon and seems to be referring to Satan. So we know the king of Babylon is under discussion. Back up in verse 4, that thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, but then when we get down to verse number 12, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nation's, for thou hast said it in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like unto the most high. Sound like he had eye trouble. And that is kind of what you get into with this whole idea of spiritual pride and greatness according to human standards. Well, let's make another observation. I, I think the question was irritating. Just like when I read you that quotation a while ago from Muhammad Ali, that, that, that sort of is off-putting to us, as I said. You know, we just, I think that maybe is one place where we tend to react in a similar way to the way God reacts because the Bible tells us this. The Bible says that God uh, resisteth the proud but gives grace to the humble. And, you know, we tend to be like that in human relationships too. The moment we sense that somebody's, you know, got this full head of steam, that somebody thinks they're better than we are, that somebody thinks they're the greatest, it's like that's an immediate put off. And we kind of tend to hold people like that right out here. It just is, it's a real turn off to us. And so I'm thinking about verse number two. I'm thinking about how Jesus reacted or how Jesus might have reacted if he had really let him have it. When they asked this question of him, Jesus didn't rebuke them, although on some occasions he chose to rebuke them. But I marvel at this because knowing that the Bible tells us that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, it's just amazing how long-suffering Jesus is with them and is with us. That They came up with a question that was so bold and so outlandish, but yet Jesus, it says, was patient and he didn't... He didn't rebuke them. It just simply says he was quiet. He just simply called a little child and set him in the midst. And Jesus set out to do like he so often did as the master teacher and use an object lesson. We'll get to that. But I really think that this question was probably an irritating question at its heart. I know it certainly comes across that way to you and to me if someone were to ask that. Thirdly, I make the observation, I think the question was shameful and you may wonder how I get this and where I get this, but as I say there's some interesting things you can pick up a few little points from looking at the alternate accounts. And so, you don't have to turn if you don't want to, but I want to read you from Mark chapter 9 verse 33 and verse 34 cuz it kind of reveals a little insight into what was going on here that we don't necessarily get from Matthew's he doesn't give us this angle in the story, just as the others don't give us the question, we don't quite get this angle in the story from the others. But in, you find it in Luke, you find it in Mark. So if you turned, I'm in Mark 9 and verse 33. And it says, he came to Capernaum and being in the house, he asked them, now watch this, what was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? So they were having a discussion about this. They were having a, a bit of a, an argument about this. In fact, it had apparently led to some bickering between them about it. And it says in verse 34, and this is where I get that the question was shameful. It says, but they held their peace, for by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. So in their hearts, they really weren't proud of what they had been talking about. Yeah. You have to give them credit for that. I mean, uh, they they just realized it was a little unseemly. And Jesus, perhaps perceiving all of this, knowing all of this, decides to probe a little bit by asking a question of his own, and immediately they're convicted in their hearts because they know it's unseemly. But that's what they've been talking about. That's what they've been disputing about. And it's led to friction between them because, as Proverbs 13.10 says, only by pride cometh contention. Generally, it brings friction and sparks into our relationships with other people. And finally, I would make the observation four things I wanted to say, and this is the last of them, that the question is so typical, they're just like us. And that's kind of the convicting part about this. There's no sense in us pointing fingers at the disciples without realizing that they just reflected how we so often are, which is one of the things that makes listening to and talking about some of these questions So helpful to us if we have an open heart. I I always think that it's a good story because he told it on himself. And I think sometimes when we're willing to tell a story on ourselves, it's a good thing. But this concerns um, Harry Ironside, that he came to a point in his uh, life and his experience where he was a little concerned that maybe he wasn't humble enough. And so he maybe felt he couldn't talk about that to too many people, but he had a friend that he felt he could talk to. So he went to his friend and told him that he felt like he was struggling with this, that he just didn't really know that he was humble enough. And did he have any suggestion? What might he do? And his friend said, well, he said, uh, I'll tell you. And he said, why don't you go and, and, and get or make one of those sandwich signs? You, you, have you seen those before where you've got kind of a, a placard that, that's maybe, I don't know, three feet tall, two feet wide, something like that. The back's the same way, and then it's hinged at the top, but it's in such a way that your head can go up through so that when you put this down over, you've got one board comes down in front, or one message, same thing then over the back. He said, why don't you make one of those? And he said, you get some Bible verses and put on there, like maybe from the Romans Road that talk about salvation, and he just put that sign on, And you have the Bible verses in front, the Bible verses in back, and just walk up and down the streets of Chicago. What do you think about that suggestion? So Ironside thought that sounded like a good suggestion, so he did that. And he walked up and down all day long. He walked up and down the streets of Chicago with this sandwich sign on Bible verses. Occasionally, he would even spout out one or two of the Bible verses to people. He got back home late that afternoon after he'd done that for a day, and he was kind of pleased. He kind of thought, you know, I I guess this went well. I guess this was a good thing. And then he caught himself because in a flash, the thought went through his mind, I bet there's not another person in Chicago that would do that. Mm. Just like us, typical. Typical, just like us. Well, so this is the problem when we, we begin to conceive of true greatness in false terms. We, we think of it according to worldly and human conceptions and not according to how God defines it or the Lord would define it. So now we're really kind of poised. We just want to take a few moments and see if we can't figure out what Jesus has to say about this. And it, it's not so much rocket science, but it's not easy either, necessarily. It's not that hard to figure out what he's talking about, but it's sort of hard to implement sometimes in your life. So Jesus uses a little child. Why do you think that Jesus uses a little child? And notice a little child. doesn't say a teenager. And I'm not poking at teenagers. I'm just saying that it doesn't take too long for us to kind of get past what it's like in the little child illustration because this human nature that, is, that we're so infused with what's typical that I mentioned a moment ago doesn't take long for that to start to come out. But a little child doesn't have the big shot syndrome. If you think about that for a few moments, in fact, little children, especially very little children, they're unpretentious. They're unassuming. They realize they're dependent on someone else. They realize they need their parents. In times when they fear, they run and cling to their parents' legs. Um, They know their parents have more knowledge. And so their whole bearing and their whole demeanor is so different than what it is as we get a little older and this pride of life begins to manifest itself uh, in our lives. And so the Lord uses the child for an object lesson. And if we look at verse number four, there's a simple one word thing that he's really after, and that's humility. He says, whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And to drive home this simple lesson of humility, which is easy to say, it's just one word, but it's easy preaching and hard living. He makes three points that I want to leave with you here today and just let you ponder these for a few moments, because I think as you see how he talks about this as what real greatness, real spiritual greatness is. First of all, here's the first Point that he makes. You know, childlike humility is necessary to even enter into the kingdom of heaven. The disciples were asking about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But do you know without this humility that Jesus is using a child to demonstrate you can't even enter into the kingdom of heaven? Look at verse 3. He says, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children. He cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of interesting because Jesus was saying this about the new birth, and of course, that takes us into this whole arena of a very little child. He says, Except a man be born again, he cannot see, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Here he says, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into, you cannot even enter into the kingdom of heaven. How does that humility manifest itself? Well, because, see, until we're at the place where we're ready to humble ourselves, we're ready to confess our sins, we're ready to confess the fact that we need a Savior, we're ready to confess the fact that we cannot save ourselves, especially when you realize that the whole worldly concept and what you encounter in so much of, of religion and liberal Christianity today is a works concept— and that's a comparative thing, right? That's exactly the worldly terms that you've, the, the, the disciples were using. They wanted to compare. Well, James, Peter, James, and John had this experience, so they must be greater. Or someone sits on your left hand and someone sits on your right hand in the kingdom, they must be greater. So it's rank or privilege or something that we've accomplished in life that we use to define, well, we're better than someone else or we're greater than someone else. To get to the place where we realize that, you know what? It doesn't matter if you're better in human terms than someone else. Are there big sinners and little sinners? Probably. I mean, certainly not everyone here this morning has done some of the things that you'll turn on the computer and look at in the news this morning and read. We can be very proud of that, right? We can compare ourselves to other people and think, well, you know, I don't, I don't certainly, I don't do all those things. And, you know, if you really start talking to people a lot, you'll hear that come out. That's, that's the concept that a lot of people have. They, they kind of realize, well, maybe I've missed the boat in a couple places. I, you know, Maybe I spoke crossly to someone yesterday or whatever, but, man, I'm nothing like that person over there. I must be okay. Not only that, I go to church, and not only that, I help little old ladies across the street, and not only that, I give to the food bank and these types of things. And so, you know, before long, we have this idea we must be good enough. And that's a worldly concept of things, and you have to get past that. You have to get to the place where the Spirit of God has done a work in your heart because, see, this doesn't come naturally to us. It has to be God, the Holy Spirit, who begins to move and work in the person's heart whereby you and I are convicted of our sins. We see our need of a Savior. We see ourselves as unable to save ourselves. We can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. None of us is good enough, whether we're big sinners or little sinners. None of us is good enough to go to God's heaven without being cleansed in the blood and without having a personal savior from sin. That's why it's a blessing when little children get saved, isn't it? Because they come to the Lord and they don't have to get later on in life and have to overcome all those barriers. And it's a wonderful thing when little children come to the Lord, but that childlike humility and Enter a contrast to this again. If you keep your fingers here, I want to take us over and show you an example or an an, an actual illustration of what I've just been talking about that Jesus gave in Luke 18. So turn to Luke chapter 18. It's we're told that this is a parable, but in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9, you'll see this come right out. It says he spoke Luke 18 9. He spoke a parable unto certain who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. What's the net effect of that? If you trust in yourself that you're righteous, well, it says then that spiritual pride enters in, and it says, and despised others. Wow. It's kind of convicting when you really see it for what it is. So then he tells the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. Do you see how that concept comes out? And he names off some of the things that are really high on his list as bad to do extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. See about trusting in yourself that you're righteous and despising others. I fast twice in a week. I might have gotten off the rails a time or two with a small thing, but nothing like this publican. And on top of that, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And he could have probably gone on, but the Lord stops. And he says, And the publican, standing afar off, would not so much as lift up his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now listen to the Lord's assessment. I tell you, this man went down to his house, that is, the publican justified, rather than the other, for everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted." One got saved, one didn't. And Jesus is saying, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So when Jesus wants to talk about this humility and he makes these points to drive home how important it is and that that's what true greatness consists of, he says, you know, you can't even get to, you can't get into the kingdom of heaven without this humility. secondly, Childlike humility is necessary to advance in the kingdom of heaven. Are you and I, having been born again, and Christian people, are we supposed to grow? Sure. Peter wrote that right. He says, but grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul would talk about this when he talked about the Corinthians, and he said, you know, you're still like on the spiritual milk bottle. You you shouldn't be that way. In other words, we're born again. We have our faith in Christ. We're saved. But just like when a child comes into the world, now it's a growth process to maturity. So it is in the Christian life. We become a part of God's family by the new birth, but it begins a growth process. And now we're supposed to become better Christians, stronger Christians, more like Jesus as time goes by. Well, this is what he's talking about in verse number um, four. If you look there, whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's a, a technicality, but it makes an interesting point. Were you to look this up in the original, you would actually find that in both cases, verse number one and verse number four, they ask who is the greatest. Jesus is talking about who is the greatest in verse number four. It actually uses the comparative. All right, so that's a technical word of grammar. What are we talking about? Well, we would say great. That's the adjective, right? Now, if you want to make it comparative, then what do we say? Greater. If you want to make it superlative, then what do we say? Greatest, like Muhammad Ali, I'm the greatest. Okay, so actually in verse one and verse two, it's actually the comparative form. They come to him, if you took it literally, translated it literally, they come to him and they say, who is the greater? You see how they were comparing? The sense of it is the greatest, but they use the comparative. The Lord picks up on that in verse 4. He too uses the comparative. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greater And it just brings to mind the whole idea that if humility is the key to becoming greater, the more humility I have in my life and the more I become like Jesus, who is meek and lowly of heart, then I will be greater in the Lord's eyes the more humility that I have in my life. It it doesn't make sense because in human terms, that's not the way we look at it. We look at it that the way up is up. And this looks at it, that the way up is down. Childlike humility is necessary to advance in the kingdom of heaven. If if we find ourselves continually exhibiting, if we find ourselves continually controlled by pride, we're not really growing in grace because as we grow in grace, that tends to dissipate. The more we understand who Jesus is, the more we understand who we are, who we really are, that, that tends to dissipate. Not that we still don't struggle with it. I think you struggle with that until the day you die. But the greater, I think, victory we have in our lives as we demonstrate it, because humility is like a lot of things, it has to be shown. You can talk about it all day long, but people really don't know you have it, except as they watch what you say and watch what you do. So it's necessary if we're going to advance. And thirdly, this point that he makes about how important this humility is and how this is the true value or test of greatness in the kingdom of heaven, childlike humility is necessary to be Christ-like. And he says in verse number five, Whosoever shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. So how do we tend to view people? Can they do something for me? Can they get me further down the road? Can they advance my cause? If they do, I have time for them. I cuddle up to them. I sort of develop my relationship with them. But why would I want to spend my time with a little kid? What can a little kid do for me? But they were like that. And sometimes so are we. Look, if you'll find this uh, later in the, chap- in the next chapter, look at chapter 19. Apparently they didn't get this lesson too well. Verse 13, Then were brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. Oh, wow. They rebuked people for bringing their little kids to Jesus. Because they had the big shot syndrome. In the same way that day Jesus was passing by and all those multitudes were around Jesus and that blind man, blind Bartimaeus cried out and they said, oh, the master's busy. The master didn't have time to you. Just a, a beggar. First, the next verse, verse 14 says, but Jesus said, suffer little children. Allow them, permit them. Suffer little children and forbid them not to come unto me for of such is the kingdom of heaven. So, Think about this for a minute. The master himself, Jesus himself, he had time for little kids, took time for little kids and rebuked those who felt that little kids weren't worth the effort and little kids weren't worth the time. Aren't you glad? Because the same thing translates over into each of us who, by many people's standards, aren't worth the time or the trouble. But Jesus is the friend of sinners He had time for the publicans and the harlots and people like that. The Pharisees derided him and criticized him because he fellowshiped with those people, because he ate with those people, because he loved those people, because he cared about those people. They didn't care too much for a guy by the name of Zacchaeus. But Jesus went and stood under that tree and said, Zacchaeus, come down. I have to come to lunch at your house today because he's a friend of sinners, because he's come to seek and to save that which is lost. The Lord has time for the unimportant because the Lord is not looking for us as far as what good things we're going to bring to his table and what we're going to accomplish for him. He's looking at it because he loves us and cares for us. And a person that looks on people that way is a person who's like Christ and a a person who just looks at people as, as someone to advance on their shoulders or climb up their back is a person who reflects worldly concepts. I remember one year we had a, I always had a great deal of respect for these people. I remember one year we had a, uh, well, we had them every year, but this particular year, the special missions emphasis, or maybe you think of it in terms of like a missions conference that we had at our church. I always looked for a theme in those things and, 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 and tried to develop them accordingly. But one year we had, and it just came to me to, to call them this. We had people that I called, they minister to the forgotten people. And so we had some folks come from, if you've ever heard of this work before, the Regeneration, Mercy, uh, Regeneration Reservation that was a work in the early days. It was started by Lester Roloff. I'm sure some of you know that name. But Scott Murphy is, and his mother Ann, we we supported Ann in our church for years and years and years. And now, when Ann passed away, that we just continue our support there because we appreciate the work that that they're doing. And uh, Scott is in charge now with his wife Kathy of that work, but it's to Native Americans. Well, if you ever go and visit there, as I've had the privilege of doing, You see right away why you might characterize them as forgotten people. Who's really thinking about the American Indian? We've long since forgotten those people. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about reparations and all of these wild, fancy ideas. I'm just talking about caring about people. And when you go and visit there, and especially when you go to where they are, where they live, and you see the way alcohol and all these things have just left tragedy. But to have people who dedicate their lives to reaching those types of people, that that always spoke volumes to me. Then we had another man who was a part of the conference that year, was also a part of the missionary family at the church. His name's Roger Knapper. All these people would still be. And he was with Rock of Ages Prison Ministry, or... Anybody ever heard of that? Well, if you're you're like me and you live in Huntington or if you, if you live in State College, you might go up 26 North and go by it every day where Rockview is. But you know in Huntington, you have two maximum security prisons. you have s c. I. Huntington and you have S. c. I. Smithfield. and you go by those places every day and you never really think it's a it's another whole world in those places. And I often think about that. I often go by those places because I've gone in there with those guys before. And uh, it's hard. That, that, that kind of work is very hard. There's not many people who are drawn to, to that kind of work because they're forgotten people. In, in many cases, they're kind of the off-scouring of society because these are maximum security prisons. You have some bad, bad people in there. You also have some people who have been saved. And so I used to think about Roger Knapper. He was a part of the conference that year. And then, then I think of New York City. And I think of Tim Richmond was a, another missionary, is another missionary supported there by the church, working in the inner city, New York City. And I think I might have mentioned to you before, uh, wow, I mean, I, just in the course of, of doing some of the work I've done for Keystone Christian Education Association and visiting some places, I mean, you could downtown Philly, my wife will tell you, I dread that. I just dread going in there. Of course, I, I mean, it's, to me, it's more the traffic and, and all that that I'm thinking about when I worry about that. But it's another world you, when you go in there. It's just another world. And uh, even places in York, you go there, it's like another world. But I used to admire people like that because it was something that I know I would have struggled with doing But these people don't have the big shot syndrome. They're not worried about what people can do for them or how people can advance them. They're worried about the fact that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And back here in this very chapter where our text is, we read this verse, verse number 10. Just look back at Matthew 18, 10 for a moment. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. If you want to know how important they are, he says, For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. But our tendency is sometimes to depreciate people like that. And it all gets back to this concept that we have of pride and greatness and how it really works in the world. And it's not that way in the kingdom of heaven. It, it works a totally different way. I want to close with a couple of other things that always used to make an impression on me. I, I want to give you a few of these thoughts just because, like I say, you can talk about humility, but you recognize it when you see it. But in our church in Huntington, they're not there any longer. Uh, I don't even know where they live now. I can't remember, but move. But it was a man, I never really knew this because I just wasn't in a position to observe it until I heard someone else say it. Then I started to watch. Then I saw that it was true. You know what it was? He would intentionally, when he came on Sunday morning, park at the back of the parking lot. Well, pretty much what everybody else does is look for the parking place that's closest to the door. This guy would pull in and on purpose park further away. I always thought, you know, that's... Talk about esteeming others better than yourselves. That, to me, is an example. Then we would do, like most churches, we would have some sort of a fellowship or potluck or whatever. And I always hated trying to figure out, how was I going to dismiss those tables? Well, Helen had to do that the other night. She had a plan, but... You can never win. You know that? No matter how you come up with how you're going to dismiss the tables, somebody's happy, somebody's not happy. You know you know what I'm saying? So You can never really win. But over time, I watched and would see that there were some people that would just get, in the end, they'd just sit, sit at their table and wait. Didn't matter. Didn't matter when you called for them, for their table. It might have been early, might have been late. They'd just sit there. Then when pretty much everybody else had gotten through the line, they'd get up and get in the line. Oh, wow, you know, if you do that, you'll get there and two or three or four of the choice things will already be gone, right? Probably. But I always thought, you know, that's really something. People that uh, are willing to do that and have that kind of victory in their lives was impressive to me, just as it was when I ran across the story about D.L. Moody. Years and years ago, Moody had invited a number of preachers from Europe to come over to uh, one of the Northfield Bible conferences there in in Northfield, Massachusetts. It would have been in the late 1800s. So the European custom was this, and so the men didn't really think about it. This is what they did. Uh, You get to the evening, they retired to their rooms, and you would put your shoes outside your door. And the reason you would do that is because sometime during the night, the hall servant would come and get your shoes and then shine them and put them back. And so in the morning you'd get them, they'd be all shined and ready for the next day. So the day was sort of over and people had gone to their rooms and the men did exactly that. They opened their doors, put their shoes down outside, and they just didn't realize uh, it didn't work that way here that we didn't have hall servants. And Moody, not wanting to embarrass them, walked up and down the hall, saw the shoes outside the door, realized what had happened, but didn't want to embarrass them. So he spoke to some people that were there. He spoke to some of the ministerial students and others about the need to shine these men's shoes so that they wouldn't be embarrassed. And he said he, he found it. He just kept running into all kinds of excuses and reasons why people couldn't do it. And so he finally decided he would take care of it himself, went down the hall, gathered up all the shoes, took them back to his room, and started shining the shoes. The only reason that we know the story is because a friend came calling, knocked on the door, and came in and saw what Moody was doing. That's how we know the story. After that, quietly, there were others who volunteered to do exactly that, to polish those shoes. And we think about Jesus who took, laid aside his outer garments, took the towel, washed the disciples' feet and said, I did that to give you an example. This is what Jesus is like, and it's not what we're like. But as we grow in grace, we can be more like that. Humility, you know it when you encounter it. Jesus was doing something similar one day when we're told this story, and I want to close with this. But in Mark chapter twelve, if you'd like to turn, it's at the end of the chapter. So I say, it's what you notice. Sometimes it's what you notice, and you you see it, and you know it's the real thing. It says in verse forty-one that Jesus sat over against the treasury, and behold, beheld how people cast. Money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And so again, Jesus wanted to make an example. He wanted to use an object lesson, and he called his disciples so they could see, and said unto them, Verily I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast in more than all they which have cast into the treasury, for they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want. Did cast in all that she had, even all her living. Well, the Lord sat over there and he saw that and knew what it was and knew it was the real thing. And here and there, sometimes you catch it, see it. Genuine examples in the Christian community, in the church, of humility. They're great things to learn from, they're great things to admire because they're really true greatness. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the thoughts we've been able to share, especially, Lord, when they run so counter to the way we tend to be. Our concepts of greatness and advancement and all these types of things tend to be so worldly in their nature, and your teaching so different. But we realize, Lord, that in you saving us, we're supposed to be different. And thank you that your Holy Spirit is in our heart to help us to be more like Christ. So in whatever we may have heard today that may have been helpful to us in our own lives, would you just seal that to our hearts? Would you just help us to want to be more like Christ? Help us to realize that it's something we learn, it's something we grow into. But on the other hand, if it's not something that's becoming more and more a part of us, then we need to think about that. So I bless each one who's here today. I pray these things in Jesus wonderful name. Amen. Let's take our songbooks. I think uh, you'll know this one, but let's turn to page 305. The title of this song is Without Him.